big rocks and all that sort of thing. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Uh, welcome to uh, another but slightly different episode of the Mick Wall podcast. Flying solo today, um, partly because... John and I couldn't get the other microphone to work the other day, despite it being new. Uh, and also because it's nice to do something different now and again, and this will certainly be different. Um, and it's a rainy Sunday afternoon here on the farm uh, in the Oxfordshire region of England, planet Earth. And I thought I would share. In fact, I thought what we'd talk about... Um, what I would talk about is what John and I were going to talk about before we had the equipment meltdown the other day. Uh, namely, uh, we did a thing recently on on magazines where we kind of dissected a Paul Elliott interview uh, with Slash in Classic Rock uh, and some other bits and pieces. I I'm going to do the same for uh, music biographies, particularly my own because obviously those are the ones I know. Uh, and also because I think I'm uh, not uniquely qualified. In the rock and metal spectrum, definitely uniquely qualified. But in a broader sense, uh, other music journalists or people nominally, nominally described as music journalists, they've covered some of this themselves, but not so much in rock and metal. Um, right, so, what is a music biography? Uh, it can take many forms. Um, in my own career, um, the very first book I ever wrote was Diary of a Madman, which was billed as the official biography of Ozzy Osbourne. Um, wrote, written in the late summer of 85, came out Feb 86, it was on Zomba, which used to put out these fairly sort of puny music fan biogs. Lots and lots of pictures, about 40,000 words maybe, which is, to offer some context, about a quarter of the size of my original Led Zeppelin biography. Um and they were glorified magazines. You know, they were much more in-depth and they were longer, but there were tons of pictures. And I used to joke and say those books really should have been called Bloody Good Blokes because that was essentially what they amounted to. A sort of uh, deep-dive, Kerrang! slash Sounds Magazine version of a book. That particular book uh, was written in a very odd way. Um, there had been quite a few different writers brought in uh, to write Ozzy's official biography, um, including uh, there was Brian Harrigan, who was like the metal writer on Melody Maker. He'd had a go. They'd rejected it. I don't know why. Then Alistair Campbell 
the Alistair Campbell, who became Tony Blair's um, attack dog uh, years later, but way back when was the pop writer on, I'm going to say, it was either The Sun or The Mirror, a tabloid. Um, uh, He had a go, and that got rejected. Don't know why. Then they brought in Gary Bushell, who'd just done um, a very similar thing on Iron Maiden, which again I think was Zomba Books, and uh, he did a fantastic job. I mean, it was great. Um, And so they went, okay, well, he can do Aussie. Uh, Except Gary's own career in the summer of 1985 was transitioning, to to use a popular phrase these days. Um, He'd been one of the star writers on Sounds magazine in the late 70s, early 80s. He'd graduated to features editor was well on his way to becoming the editor one day if he wanted it, I guess. But by then he was, um, he'd moved on to the newspapers. Uh, it was the start of Gary's career on The Mirror, The Sun, um, uh, and many more as the years would go by. Um, so he was desperately short of time. He had this great career opportunity which far outweighed uh, writing a fan book on Ozzy Osbourne. So Gary very kindly uh, suggested that he would write the first half of the book, 20,000 words, bish, bash, bosh, and I could come in and write the second half, which to cut a long story short is exactly what we did. And then when they got the two halves and put them together, uh, they decided they didn't like the first half um, uh, and that I should uh, write the first half so this is awkward but Gary really did have bigger fish to fry um, and he very graciously said yeah no problem um, so that's how the first book I ever wrote came about kind of sideways backwards the fourth writer brought in writing the second half first then the first half second um, The important point in this, though, uh, and this carried on for a few more books. Um, My second book was the uh, authorised biography, official biography, uh, whatever we used to call them back then, of Marillion. Um, And that became this enormous tome. I mean, it was about five times the size of the Aussie book, less pictures, much more, as it were, literary and it took me ages. I think it was all written on typewriters in those days. I went on tour with them. I'd known them for years. I interviewed them extensively. And when we ended up with a huge book that took me months and months to write. Um, uh, and I broke four typewriters doing it and about six boxes of Tipex. Those were the days. But again, the point really is, is that um, there were others like this, the Iron Maiden, the official biography of Iron Maiden, Run to the Hills, which I think came out in like 98. Um, these were books where I worked with the artist. It was all official, but it was me. It was Mick Wall writing a bio- the official biography of Ozzy, Marillion, Iron Maiden. These are not to be confused with 
other books uh, that have since become uh, more popular in that market, which are autobiographies or memoirs. And these are nominally, that word again, these are, um, the idea is that the artist themselves writes these, although that happens almost not at all. And, and what's called a ghostwriter gets brought in. Um, I've done a few of these. The first one I did like this was uh, I ghosted the memoir of Don Arden, Sharon Osbourne's father, uh, father slash music biz pioneer slash mafia connected crazy man. Uh, I, I loved working with Don because I love stories and I love larger than life characters and, and he really was one. Um, he'd done so many things. He'd been a song and dance man. He'd toured with Tommy Cooper. He was one of the original black and white minstrels. Um, and then in the 50s, when rock and roll uh, kind of blew that whole scene away, uh, what used to be called vaudeville, um, Don turned himself into a manager, a promoter. Um, he managed Little Richard, Gene Vincent, and then more famously in the 60s, The Small Faces, and then in the 70s, ELO, Wizard, and Black Sabbath. Um now, in, that really was, uh, my name is somewhere on that cover or inside that book, but it was called Mr. Big, and it was by Don Arden. I did another one for Francis Rossi and Rick Parfit, exactly like that, called Excess All Areas, which I think came out the same year as Don, or around that time. And I've done a bit more of that more recently, uh, again, because this is what publishers have wanted to pay money for. So in 2019, the Francis Rossi memoir, I Talk Too Much, came out and that was ghosted by me. Um, and in that sense, what, what that means is I wrote every single word. Uh, yes, I worked with Don and Francis and Rick and then Francis again. Um uh, but they don't actually write anything. They talk to you, uh, you show them what you've done, they correct it, or they add other thoughts, or they say, I never said that. Um, that happens a lot. Um, and I've done a few of these. So I, I did Francis. That was a very successful ghosted memoir. Um, I did something very similar for Doc McGee one of my favourite books ever to write. That hasn't seen the light of day yet. I also did it for Ronnie James Dio. That book came out last summer, uh, Rainbow in the Dark. Um, and that was a strange, slightly different situation, obviously, because Ronnie uh, died back in 2010. But he had begun actually writing his memoirs. He didn't use a computer. He wrote by hand. Uh, he'd give the pages to Wendy and Wendy would get someone in her office to type it up on a computer. Uh, by the time I came to look at this material, um, I mean, it almost went back to the days of floppy disks. Um, it, was, uh, it wasn't quite that ancient, but it was very, it, these were very old computer files. And eventually what I was given was pages and pages of printouts. 
and um, I'd known Ronnie and Wendy Dio for 30 years. I'd been banging on to Wendy about doing something like this for all the years since Ronnie died. And finally we were doing it. And, and how I achieved it in the end was I worked on it the same as I would have done, as far as possible, the same as I would have done if Ronnie had still been alive. That is, um, taken what he said, in this case what he wrote, and come back to him with it and, and ask him to enlarge on certain areas or uh, get more details on certain things. Often people, when they're writing about their own lives or mainly talking about their own lives, there are things that they dismiss in passing which are actually tremendously interesting uh, to the rest of us. Um, and with Ronnie, of course, I mean, I, I'd, I'd interviewed him a million times. I'd also worked as his PR, his press agent, uh, when he was in Sabbath in 1980, and again in the mid-90s. Um, we had had many, many conversations about many, many things. And of course, Wendy, even more than me, even more than anybody. Um, and she also has this incredible archive, which contains pretty much every interview Ronnie ever gave, uh, not just to newspapers and magazines, but radio interviews, TV. And as the years went by, different websites and just an incredible accumulation, a, a true archive of material, plus my own pretty extensive archive. So in the end, uh, everything was taken from his words. It was a bit like an archaeology mission somewhat. I had what he'd written. I had what he'd told me. I had what he'd told Wendy. I had Wendy's memories as well. And we had this insane Aladdin's Cave archive full of stuff. I spent about three days in L.A. with Wendy just going through all the magazine uh, cuttings and things and that's before we got on to all the audio stuff and the TV stuff it was, um, it was a big, big job but in the end we managed to sew it together I say we, I managed to sew it together because I had Ronnie's voice in my head I knew that voice so well I also still have all the audio recordings so I could always <laughs> hear his voice anytime I wanted um, but with Wendy's guidance, I was able to put that book together in Ronnie's own words. And they really are. Um, and to, to stay faithful to, to, to that spirit, unlike uh, my biography of Maiden or Marillion, where um, my opinions count almost as much um, because I'm like a historian bringing you the story. When you're ghosting, it is absolutely not your story. There is no wriggle room to, 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 you know, I don't like a record, he liked a record. No one gives a shit what I like. It's all about Ronnie telling his story or Francis telling his story or Doc telling his story. So I was very, very proud of these things. But Dio, of course, in a slightly different way because... Um, it was such a, an unusual journey. Um, and the book itself, you know, is something that uh, I can't imagine really ever doing anything like that again with any other artist. 
since then, I've done yet another different kind of... Um, it's in the area of ghosting, but it's not the same as Dio, not the same as Rossi or anybody else. It's much more of a writer's collaboration with Stephen Wilson, uh, originally famous as the founder and singer and leading light of Porcupine Tree, but for these past uh, 12 years, very much a solo artist, a more successful solo artist than he ever was in Porcupine Tree. Although, of course, Porcupine Tree is now a legend. Stephen had been approached for years and years to write his memoirs, and he'd always turned people down. Um, as he says in the book, and as he said to me many times, uh, my life just isn't that interesting. None of which uh, is true, of course. Um, Stephen's life is incredibly interesting. He's a major artist, a major creative force, a guy who's released over 50 different albums under various guises, collaborating with all sorts of different artists over the years. And, of course, he's also remastered, remixed. Oh, my God. Uh, so many major artists over the years. Um, uh, anyway, so he's a very definitive figure, true artist in his own right. Almost no one else like him, certainly in the UK. And... But he didn't want to, he thought his life was boring. Uh, there was no sex, there was no drugs, even the rock and roll uh, was less of the Guns N' Roses variety or Led Zeppelin and much, much more of the um, Pink Floyd or that more sort of cerebral end of things, Brian Eno. Um, uh, but we found a way. Uh, I got through to him through various contacts, mutual friends. And we met up Christmas 2019, or just after Christmas 2019. Um, we had lunch at a pub up the road from where he lives. And it was one of those, it was like a first date. Um, you know, what's your favourite records? Or talking about various artists we both admire. And I was also trying to impress upon him that he didn't have to just write a, I was born and then this happened and then that happened. And we certainly didn't need sex and drugs, neither of which he could talk about in that same way anyway. Um, uh, I pointed him towards the Bob Dylan book Chronicles. Um, in that book, Dylan literally discusses two different periods in his life, neither one of which would qualify as the bits people, mo his fans most wanted to read about. But the fact that he wrote it and it was his voice made it immensely fascinating. There were other ones. Donald Fagan, uh, he put a, a tremendously brilliant part memoir, part essay thing out years ago. Um, and several other things that I, I don't think Stephen was entirely aware of. Um, so over the course, and then we said, well, let's, you know, we've both got a busy 2020 We'll come back, we'll circle back, as we say, and we'll resume this conversation. And then, of course, three months later, two months later, the first lockdown began and his album release was put back nine months. Everybody's life was put on hold. And um, he said, what about it? How about we do this now then? There's nothing else to do. So between April 2020 
and the end of last year, 2021, uh, beginning of this year, in fact, January 2022, we were still bolting bits on. Um, Stephen and I collaborated uh, on the book that's coming out in a few weeks, which is uh, called Limited Edition of One. And it's part memoir. I did get Stephen talking about his life. I did get him talking about Porcupine Tree and all these other incredible things he's done. But not in that linear, chronological way. Um, we applied some magical thinking, if you like. Um, and I don't want to give away uh, any spoilers. So you really do need to pick up the book to appreciate really what we did. But in a very roundabout, thematic way, Stephen um, is extremely forthcoming about his life, his work, his thoughts on everything from music to film to art to TV to food to love, death, God, the devil, you name it. There's also a short story in there that he wrote and that I also worked with him on. But the process was unlike anything I'd ever been involved in. Um... We would begin with Zoom, started on Skype, and then, of course, come lockdown, Zoom becomes the thing. So we would, uh, I would record these conversations we would have, get them professionally transcribed, and then go to work on them, getting rid of the ums and the ahs and how are you doing today and all that business. Uh, and also repetitions or blind alleys. Some of these things would be 25,000 words long, one conversation. I'd pare them right down. When in doubt, I would leave it in because I'd pare them down, but I would leave uh, certain loose ends, certain strands, ideas. I'd put notes in and then I'd send it to him and he'd take that and run with it. Uh, the, the only rule was no rules. If you, if you see something you think you can do better or change or you don't like... No rules. You take it out, you change it, you put something else in, you do whatever you want. So he would take that and do that, and then he would send it back to me. And then I would take that, same rules applied. I would uh, uh, add, subtract, polish, shave, manage, manipulate, suggest, send it back to him. And then he would do it and send it back to me. And, and there was no kind of, well, we'll do this twice each and that's it. Or it, it, We just knew when it was done. Uh, there would come a moment where we would both kind of go, I think that's it now. And that would become the chapter. Um, I will talk about more about um, the stuff that's in there. It's coming out on April the 7th, and I really do not want to uh, preempt anything. Uh, until the book is available but it's you know the, the deal I'm immensely proud of because it was so unusual such a one-off the Stephen Wilson is similar in the sense that I can't imagine ever ever doing another book like this with any other rock rock artist music artist any kind of artist really because it was truly collaborative to the point where um, uh, last week he and I met in a studio in London because uh, we're doing an audio version. And uh, there are uh, certain chapters where we 
break the fourth wall, as it were, and my voice comes in. And so I needed to be there to record those bits. And uh, it was strange not having uh, looked at the manuscript for a couple of months uh, and to be seeing it in this very different medium where it's scrolling on a screen as we're both doing our bits. Um, Truthfully, it was hard to know who wrote what. Um, It just is an entity. It's very much aimed at capturing Stephen's voice. But it's not meant to be entirely conversational. It is meant to be proper thoughts and ideas uh, put on the page as best we can. Me as the uh, consummate professional and Stephen as Stephen. Um, And it really is something. And I say this as a man who's also written some terrible books, which I'm also going to get onto in a minute. This is a fucking masterpiece. I'm very proud of it. And I feel able to say that because um, I don't believe in false modesty, particularly when someone like me is more than happy to tell you about all the absolute fucking nightmares and dead ends that I've also been responsible for, which I will get on to. Um, I'm now working with some other artists uh, on other things that won't be like Dio and won't be like Stephen but will be very interesting. Um, But the key point really, I think, is there is a difference between uh, my Guns N' Roses book, Last of the Giants, or my Led Zeppelin book, When Giants Walk the Earth, or my own personal, I think, best thing I've ever done, uh, my Jimi Hendrix book, Two Riders Were Approaching. Uh, For me, the best work I've ever done, and and, and again, a very different kind of biography, um, but almost entirely ignored out there in the so-called real world, Um, which doesn't make it bad. Some of the biggest shit I've ever read in my life has been number one on the bestsellers list and vice versa. But again, it was a different endeavor, and I will attempt to give you what I mean by that. Um. A Mick Wall book these days is, I, I, I try and put, place myself uh, almost like a Simon Sharma. I'm going to give you the history, the cultural context. I'm going to play no favours. I do not write my books for the fans. I write my books for people that love great books, that people that really enjoy reading literary biographies and enjoying wonderful stories by excellent writers. Um, But, of course, long before I got to that, uh, I was doing what I now called fan books. And there are a lot of decent fan book writers out there. Joel McIver, my old sparring partner on Dead Rock Stars. Joel is a book machine. Um, He's done so many books on everybody from Cliff Burton to Randy Rhodes to John Mayle. Uh, he even fessed up to me one time, and I wish I could remember who they were, but, you know, he I don't know if he did it anonymously or what, but he's done loads of books on various pop stars and uh, rap artists, I think, you know, stuff that you wouldn't necessarily assume would be Joel McIver territory. Doesn't matter. Bish, bash, bosh. Out it goes. As a result, he's done his fair share of bollocks, But he's also done uh, some good stuff too. His Glenn Hughes 
he ghosted the Glenn Hughes biography uh, and he did a really great job, a really great job. Um, but Joel's main thing, uh, like Joel and what's his name, Martin? Oh, fuck, I can't remember. But, you know, the, these guys that crank them out on metal bands, um, they are fans themselves and they quite often have the whole story in their head before they begin to write it because they are fans and they think about this stuff all the time and they listen to the music all the time over years and years and years. Um, so they do this stuff uh, and, and, you know, fans often like it very much indeed. But I personally can't stand that stuff. Um, I don't want to read a, a book about Miles Davis that just tells me how fucking awesome he is, what a great guy he is, and uh, how he's never made a bad record. I want to get some blood on the page. I've got the music. Of course, if there's something new to say about it, tell me. I'm all ears. But I'm not buying it because I'm a fan. I'm buying it because I want to read a great fucking book. Um... Uh, it's just that artists like Dylan or the Beatles or Miles Davis or even Mozart, Amadeus, they get proper treatments. They get proper writers willing to deep dive warts and all, uh, good and the bad and the ugly, and just bring back the gold and tell us the story. Just hasn't really happened in rock and metal, um, except for me. There's got to be others. There's got to be. I mean, I think... Um, I'm saying that, actually. I can't think of one. There are other good uh, writers. Paul Brannigan did a nice book on Dave Grohl. Uh, but to me, that was uh, a fan book. Um, there are many others. But but to me, they're just not very interesting because they're not literature. And I'm all about the books. I'm all about the words far more than I am about music. And I always have been. Um the trick I have discovered, uh, for instance, Led Zeppelin. There's a good example. The Led Zeppelin book, oh my God, that came out in 2008, the original version. But the, the seeds of that book went back three, four years uh, to the days when I did used to talk to Jimmy Page uh, quite regularly and I'd known him since the 80s. Uh, we had been friends, colleagues. We'd done a lot together. And um, uh, my publishers back then, I just, my own career had finally got me in the early 2000s to a place where I wasn't doing books for Zomba or Omnibus or any of the fan book stuff. I was on a proper big time mainstream publisher called Orion and one of the bigwigs there uh, really really was interested in putting out a Jimmy Page memoir they did exactly the same thing same people same company with Keith Richards just a few years later uh, the book that was called Life and it sold millions I mean it was a huge hit uh, kind of refreshed Keith Richards career entirely to the point where they had a whole weekend based on him on uh, BBC Four, I seem to recall. 
Um, well, before that, they wanted to do Jimmy Page. And, you know, Jimmy was ugh, a wonderful guy to get to know. Not all that good at interviews. It, it, it was kind of like he still thought he was talking to the Melody Maker in 1973. Um, a lot of cliches, a lot of oh, nervous exhaustion and all that sort of, you know, cobblers. Um Whereas the real story, of course, was powerful stuff. But after Hammer of the Gods and just Jimmy's own nature as a private person, a man with secrets, um, he didn't want to talk about the sex. He did not want to talk about the drugs. And he certainly did not want to talk about the occult. The occult meaning literally hidden knowledge. Um and again, as with Stephen Wilson all those years later, 15 years later, I pointed out to Jimmy the many examples there are of great books by amazing artists that have nothing to do with sex and drugs and, in this case, um, ritual magic. Uh, and that we could do an amazing book and that we should he should do it because at that moment, the only book that anybody that wasn't uh, someone that bought fan books on Led Zeppelin actual readers of great books the only book they knew of when it came to led zeppelin was hammer of the gods uh, and stephen davis did a fantastic job of that on that in what, 84 85 but the world has moved on so much since then you know we've got a million behind the music documentaries we're online we've had metallica's some kind of monster we've had spinal tap you know we we are so far the other side of the rainbow from where the music book world and music fans were in the early 80s when Hammer of the Gods was first conceived, that um, something, it was just a bet, great time, do something new. Jimmy, get your stamp on it and tell the story how you would like it to be told. And so I went to Jimmy. He asked me to put it all in writing. I put it all in writing. We were talking a lot of money. I think Keith Richards got just over three million pounds in advance for his book, which was four or five years after what the period I'm talking about. So with Jimmy, I think the the, the magic phrase was seven figure sum, meaning uh, over a million. Um, and this will go on too long, so I'll keep it short. But he decided in the end, he decided he didn't want to do it. So I went to him and said, look, Jimmy, because this is what the publishers have told me, if you don't want to do it, that's fine. But they think as Led Zeppelin book, it's a great time for something like that. They're going to commission someone to do it. They're going to ask me to do it. And if I say no, because I'm your friend and I don't want to upset you, they will just get someone else. And it will be someone that hasn't known you for 20 years. It will be someone that will fuck it up. Um, so we had this sort of loose understanding where I would do the book and he would, you know, if he felt like it, call me, talk to me. It didn't really happen. It didn't work out that way. And this is my very long winded way of trying to relate how, uh, when I began, when I finally began that book in 2007, I had a pretty strong grasp on the Zeppelin story. I'd met and interviewed Robert many times, John Paul Jones. I'd gotten to know Peter Grant. In fact, just before Peter Grant 
Zepp's manager died, um, he and I had agreed that I would uh, write his biography, his official biography. This is back in like 94, 95. And uh, these days it would have been a memoir. I'd have ghosted it. But back then it was all about, now I'll write the biography, but it'll be authorized and you'll be the, you know, it'd be clear that this is your story as told by you. And then he died. Um, I'd gotten to know Richard Cole a little bit when he was working for Sharon Osbourne when I was doing the Don Arden memoir, Mr. Big. So I was in that world. Um, I'd also, by then I was running Classic Rock magazine. I knew that world extremely well. Felt if anybody had a handle on this story, it was me. Guess what? In the course of the uh, months and years of research that went into that book, I discovered that I'd got it all wrong. In fact, I didn't really know anything. I knew something, but it was the tip of the iceberg. And where I went was deep down, way down inside, to have a good route round of what was uh, beneath beneath the sea line. Um, and I, and I, 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 a simple example, I remember going into that book wishing Zeppelin would just get back together. What's wrong with Robert? Look at the Stones, look at the Who, come on. It's the era of classic rock. Just leave your hang-ups at the door and just everybody have a good time. By the end of the book, I totally got where Robert was coming from. Uh, to this day, I really hope that Led Zeppelin don't ever reunite. Um, I realize now that Jimmy has become this sort of Miss Havisham figure where he's still waiting for it to happen. Um, and Robert is like, you know, the cat running away from Pepe Le Pew. He absolutely does not want to know. The whole thing stinks to him. Um, it was also where I learned some other important lessons like just don't repeat what everybody else says. It's so easy. Bonham's death, you know, what the orthodoxy, Bonham's death. Well, Led Zeppelin broke up because John Bonham died and John Bonham was irreplaceable. Or as Jimmy Page told me many times, there were four elements in Led Zeppelin. John Bonham was one of those elements. Without him, you can't have Led Zeppelin. Poetic, plausible, load of bollocks. Doing the book, uh, the research... It just dawned on me, on me one day, I was listening to some, I don't know what I was listening to, something to do with the second Zeppelin album, live version or a BBC version or something of Whole Lot of Love, and it dawned on me that the drumming on that album is incredible, of course, um, but if Bonham had died after that album came out, whether it had been, you know, sad illness or plane crash or the way he did die which was a, a, a cd overdose um asphyxiation in fact um would zeppelin have stopped after the second album if bonham had died would jimmy and robert and john paul jones gone do you know what there are four elements in zeppelin and john was one and without him we simply cannot carry on would they fuck? They'd have got someone else in. 
And it, it wouldn't have been the same, but it would have been fine. It might even have been better. Might have lasted longer. Maybe not. But look at the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Chad Smith wasn't their original drummer. Um, did it did it get better after he joined? I'd say it did. But did it change? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You just don't know with these sliding doors moments what the outcome would be. All I can tell you, 100% is they would have got another drummer and they would have carried on. So why did they break up? Because they were already dead. And that was the inescapable conclusion I came to after my months and years working on Zeppelin. Um, and that and that for me was a big journey. I added another 42,000 words to that book uh, for the 10th anniversary edition in 2018, which also happened to be the 50th anniversary of them recording the first Zeppelin album. Um, there were people that wouldn't talk to me when I did the book originally that then had read the book over the years and couldn't wait to talk to me now. Um, but what I discovered was you have to let that story almost tell itself. You can't play favours. If you're a fan, you're always looking for reasons or excuses to explain uh, some hideous moment or something that's completely an anomalous. But he said he loved him and the next day he killed him. You know, it's very hard for fans. It's very, very hard. Or people that just aren't in that world. I was doing a... Um, an interview uh, thing a few weeks ago to promote uh, this pod. And um, I can't even remember how we got there, but in passing, the guy said to me, and he wasn't a kid, he was a proper middle-aged bloke, he said, uh, talking about Paul and Linda McCartney, and how, um, you know, how did how did Paul McCartney end up with someone like that? You know, she was... Um, you know, she'd slept with loads of famous musicians. I mean, come on, you know. <clears throat> and I said, because she gets it, because Linda McCartney would have been one of the few people in the world um, who got it when she met Paul. She didn't walk in the room like a screaming fan. She didn't, Linda Eastman as she was, she didn't sit there telling him what her favourite Beatles song was, or not until he want, not until he was interested to find out. That would not have been conversation one. It would have been about the hang. It would have been about finding someone that absolutely isn't going to fucking bore you talking about that shit. It would have been fun. It would have been a million things. But again, it reminded me that it's not just fans. It's people that aren't in that world. It's very hard for them to grasp easily how fucking ordinary and stupid and selfish and fucked up and pointless uh, so many of these lives are, as is the case with all of us. And it doesn't preclude you from doing in incredible immortal music or whatever it might be. Um, and in fact, for me, it makes it more interesting, you know, so that when a band comes off the road for a year, it's not because they're having a well-deserved break, it's because they're sick of the fucking sight of each other or they just want to fuck off and do something else. They've got the money to do it. See you later. Or when a band arrives to tour, 
They have invaded the shores. No, they haven't. They've turned up at a fucking boring hotel in the middle of the country somewhere and it's just another day on the fucking road. No one is invading any shores. There is no campaign to win the war, take the territory. None of that is true. They just want to make some money, sell some records, not get a proper job. And if they can do something immortal or timeless along the way, fucking amazing. But it's not that easily pigeonholed thing. So in my books, very much, um, that's what I've tried to do. Just let that story tell its truth to you, even when it doesn't make sense to you or it doesn't feel right. Oh, God. The other thing I get asked is, um, what do the bands make of your books? I don't fucking care. Uh, Jimmy Page has never spoken to me uh, since the book came out. Oh, no, he has spoken to me, but we have, we have not been friends. Um, the Metallica book, Enter Night. Uh, James Hetfield has let it be known he will never speak to me again. Lars Ulrich, uh, a more educated, sophisticated person, uh, still rings me. The first time he rang me after the book came out, he said, Hey, it's your favourite drummer. Which was a joke, because in the book it points out that, you know, he's probably nobody's favourite drummer. He's not bad these days, but he wasn't very good in the beginning, or for a long time. Um... I don't care. Axel Rose, that's so convoluted because of the song he wrote, which was his own uh, complicated, distressed, mentally unwell way of dealing with a mess he had made, something he had done that he was looking to blame other people for. As again, we've all done, but not on that scale. Um, I don't care. Slash and I are still... Uh, if I saw him right now, we'd hug it up, bitch, and laugh and joke. None of that affected one bit of what I've written about Guns N' Roses over the years or what I put into Last of the Giants. Um, and now we come to Hendrix. My Jimi Hendrix book came out in September 2019. Similar to Zeppelin or whoever, The Doors, when I did The Doors, Metallica. I totally disregarded all the other books that had been written about him. In terms of information, facts, quotes, background detail, they were very useful, as is the internet, as are TV shows, radio, blah de blah de blah Anything you can access is all grist to the mill, but it's what you do with it. And Hendrix, to me, seemed... Uh, a fascinating challenge, if you like, because he's like the Jesus Christ of rock. He's He's been written about by everybody. It's not like Led Zeppelin, where only one or two, one really, Stephen Davis, serious person ever wrote about them. Hendrix has been written about by all the gods of rock writing and music journalism. Some really fucking amazing books have come out based on the Hendrix story along with the dozens and dozens of shitty ones that also come along too. But honestly, I had never read one that seemed to get their head around the fact that he wasn't a white man. You know, he wasn't Eric Clapton's best friend. He didn't fucking look up to Pete Townsend. 
Jimmy Page, last time I checked, was still claiming he never even saw Hendrix play. Ha! 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 Yeah. Um, but, the, 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 you know, this kind of image of Hendrix, you know, the publishers were sending me pictures they wanted to put in the book. Uh, Hendrix in Carnaby Street. Uh, Hendrix with the experience. Uh, Hendrix setting fire to his guitar. In the end... I told them I didn't want any pictures in the book because that stuff just was A, boring, and B, not even close to the story that I discovered through the months and months I spent looking into that. And I was, I still am absolutely awestruck how much of the story has never been told. Um, I was finding out new stuff every single day. I That book... I knew barely any of it before I wrote it. And so, all good. But the main the main difference with Hendrix was that I'd been reading a lot of James Elroy, American Tabloid, The Cold 6000. And what Elroy does with American history, in particular those books, Sam Giancana from the Mafia, John Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy... Uh, the whole that whole world that existed in the late fifties and sixties, um, he takes it and comes up with the most detailed, plausible uh, explanation for the way history went, including up to and beyond uh, Kennedy, both Kennedys' assassinations, and um, it's fiction. It's nominally that word again, fiction. But it didn't hit me that way. I didn't feel I was reading fiction. I knew I wasn't reading uh, some journalist rummaging through the records and coming back with, it says here, you know. I was reading someone taking every bit of information he'd ever received about Kennedy and that whole era, the Kennedys, uh, and Vietnam, and all these other things get rolled into the story. Um, this wasn't an investigative journalism digging for gold. This was a guy who'd taken all of that stuff that had already been done, taken all the music he'd ever heard, taken every book he'd ever read, every film, every thought he'd ever had, and diluting that and making that the way he was able to interpret the so-called facts. And in such a genius, evocative way that um, it, it becomes neither here nor there whether you believe the lone gunman theory which I don't even want to say what a fucking come on uh, whether you believe that or the grassy knoll or the three men or da 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 Elroy tells you who did it how it was done why it was done I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And it leaves you with a version of reality which just feels more true, even, even though he's using literary devices. He's using his own imagination to evoke, to evoke certain scenes. And as Jimmy Page would put it, to invoke, to invoke um, a more convincing version of reality that that kind of straight reporting or adherence to the so-called facts Zeppelin broke up because Bonham died. Fuck off. Metallica carried on because that's what Cliff would have wanted. Fuck off. So with Hendrix, I felt here we've got, you know, it's Robin Hood. It's Jesus Christ. Um, it, it, it's a story that in rock terms, in music terms, is so over familiar. What can you possibly add? Well, page one begins with the murder of Jimi Hendrix. Uh, and it's none of this kind of, um, you know, it could be, I would postulate. No, this is what fucking happened. Check this shit out. And it's written, that's me, that's the best version of me that existed right then as a writer. It was advanced of anything I'd ever done before. And once I got started, I couldn't stop. And um, at the end of it, it's not perfect. I wasn't aiming for perfection. I just wanted to do something really remarkable and true. And that reminded people that Hendrix was a black man. Um, and suffered because of it. And ultimately paid for it with his life. Um, the publishers didn't like it. Uh, one of the editors herself, a, a wonderful young woman of colour, as we are now obliged to say, uh, personally objected to some of what they uh, called racial epithets. These are not. This was not me using racial epithets. This was me evoking Hendrix's childhood in the fifties. You know, he, he, between his mum and dad, we're talking whore, drug addict, alcoholic. We're talking super fucking poor, super dysfunctional. That stupid word. Super crazy. It was amazing Hendrix even got to live to be an adult. And then his whole career in New York as Jimmy James, where he became a pimp himself at one point. Um, and then when he arrives in London, this whole, I mean, you know, I don't want to spell out the book, but uh, Noel Redding once told me, that he and the band always saw Jimmy and everybody, all the cool cats in London, man. You know, this is the highest compliment he could play. He said, we always consider Jimmy an honorary white man. Wow. They were still looking down on that poor fucker when they were burying him. They're still looking on, down on him today. 
the wild black man who set fire to his guitar and shook his groin and no anyway i i i i had scenes when he comes to london yeah one of the managers not chas chandler the guy that really pulled the strings mike jeffries and as everybody white people did all the time in those days you could even see it on the telly in sitcoms words like coon words like nigger words like uh, colored um and not just those but kike and paddy and um i can't i wanted you to be in that room in, with that cigarette smoke with that terrifying oppressive banality of the way people spoke like that in those days and then I just imagine you're Jimi Hendrix and none of this is a surprise in fact compared to New York or Seattle or Los Angeles or wherever London was was a creepy old town was soft easy going soft porn compared to the hardcore reality of Hendrix's, Hendrix's life um, before he got to London this was the norm and, you know, so yes, these very seedy characters will use words like that. Um, but they were regarded as rach, uh, racial epithets. And I was asked to either remove or uh, take, you know, just change them. Remove or soften or minimize. And I absolutely refused. And then my agent took me to lunch relatively new agent at the time because uh, they'd gone to him crying and he begged me to take them out because he said um uh, the book will provoke outrage in the media and i went and his name's matthew i said matthew I'd, I'd fucking love it if this book provoked outrage i haven't had any of my books reviewed properly or discussed properly in the big newspapers since Led Zeppelin, and this has been a bugbear for me, um, because it's all down to the absolute crap promotions department at the publishers. Brilliant publishers, enormously supportive, great people working on the editorial side. Absolute fucking rubbish when it comes to promoting my books. That's another conversation. So... Uh, and I did tell Matthew that. He was a relatively new publisher. He didn't quite, you know, I had to spell it out. Um, but I, it was coming down to a deal breaker. It was kind of like, well, we're not going to put it out. So I did. There's one bit in Mike Jeffrey's office in like 1966, which Mike calls coon time. And I, we had to, I had to change that or what I said. I don't know what I fucking said, but it was just a case of taking that one word out. Um, we could use nigger, but only if it was a black character saying it, even though the whole point, the whole point, I'm talking about some mafiosi figure in 1968 holding a gun to Hendrix's head. What do you think he called him? At one point I said, have you guys ever read James Elroy? Have you ever read William Burroughs, Charles Bukowski? Have you ever read Martin Amis? Have you ever read fucking anything that was for people with a reading age above 12? But publishing is run 
by people that are very, very woke. The whole culture in UK publishing in London is Wokahontas. It is Snowtown. Um, and the book suffered, and it broke my fucking heart. The whole deal was always going to be, it's the 50th anniversary of his death in 2020. If we bring out 2019, one year before, hardback, it'll get a ton of publicity and make a big impact. But one year later, on the actual anniversary of his 50th death, the paperback, the cheaper, affordable, mass market paperback will fucking kill it. Hardback came out, nothing. Crickets. Dust Bowl. In fact, a Dust Bowl would have been noisier. Not one review in the broadsheets, not one review in the tabloids. I couldn't even get the fucking thing reviewed in, in Mojo. Or, or, or did Classic Rock review it? I don't fucking know. No one did. Maybe they did or they're on a website. Actually, no. Let me take some of that back. I think Classic Rock actually ran an extract on their website. So I completely take that back. But I was, I mean, but Classic Rock was, you know, I, I organized that. Um, the book came out today, left again later that day. It was a dud. And it left me so brokenhearted, I vowed I would never work with them again. Um, and then COVID hit six months later. And over the course of the last two years, my, like all of us, my, what do you call it? My headspace has, uh, I, I don't want to say changed because I'm not a different person, but it certainly had a lot more to consider. And so I am doing one more book with Orion slash trapeze. Um, and it's a biography of the Eagles. And it's due to come out uh, this coming September 2022. And yeah, I'm going to do a Hendrix on it. Um, except I don't expect there are that many racial epithets in an Eagles story. Uh, maybe a few, but um, not as much as in a Hendrix story. Uh, anyway, that's not my... Who cares? I just let, let the story tell me what it wants to tell me and completely disregard whatever happened on my last book or ten books ago or yesterday. I just will let that story fucking get up and dance around and shake its ass. I'm going to write it quick. Today is February 13, the day before Valentine's Day. And although there is a shit ton, of, a mountain of documents and research and books and documentaries and interviews and stuff, I haven't actually written one single word. I did a very detailed proposal three, three four years ago. Three years ago, three years ago. So I can always kind of look at that as a thing to use as a mental starting point. But I'm not even going to do that. I'm going to I'm gonna write it fast. It has to be in by April. I'm going to write this fucker fast. Fast and fearless. And um, if they fuck it up again... Nothing ventured, nothing gained. Uh, meantime, I seem to now have this parallel career if I want it, which 
I really don't unless it's someone amazing like Stephen Wilson or a very unusual project like Dio. Um, I'm not interested in being a great memoirist. Um, although I do enjoy reading other people's memoirs if they are remarkable. And now I don't know where I am. So uh, I was going to tell you about music biographies. Tricks. Tricks of the trade. Uh, my 86 Aussie biography was done mainly based on one interview I did with Sharon Osbourne and all the stuff Gary Bushell had done and the two other writers before him. I just mishmashed it all together. It took about three weeks for my half and another two weeks to redo the first half. I would sit at this tiny table in my bedroom with six packs of Pilsner and an endless endless conveyor belt of the sweet leaf and just right off my tits, you know. Marillion, uh, much more drawn out and protracted. My mum was also fatally ill at the time and in fact died as I was working on the book. Um, Guns and Roses, and I don't remember what this, why it was so urgent that it got done quick, but I wrote that first book I ever wrote on a computer, the most dangerous band in the world. It was basically just my Kerrang! interviews, but the full-length versions, uh, plus me waxing lyrical about, you know, how great Guns N' Roses are. Um, wrote that in three weeks. Um, the next one, Pearl Jam, was a bit like Marillion. I spent a lot of time on that. And uh, right at the start of that, the girl I'd been living with for nine years... Uh, decided she was going to go and live in Seattle where she'd been doing some research for me because she'd met this amazing sound engineer with a goatee. And uh, and the re- it was like it was like saying Bonham Bonham's death was the end of Zeppelin. Her fling in Seattle was not the end of it. We'd been fucking gone for years. I'd never been faithful. It, there were no children. We weren't married. We were just together for fucking eternity. Um... So that had an effect. Bon Jovi, oh my God, that was written in a weekend. It was called All Night Long. It was for Omnibus. And it was part of a little deal me and Malcolm Dome did to co-write a series of quickie, quickie, cheap and cheerful, get that shit out of the way, pick up some money, books. We did one on Nirvana, I think. I think we did one on the Stone Temple Pilots. Just 20,000 words, thin, tons of pictures, A4. What else did we do? Oh, yeah, and then Bon Jovi, Bon Jovi. And um, Malcolm had written a book on Bon Jovi a couple of years before. And this is the days of floppy disks. This is like 94. And he came to my flat at the time. Uh, this is when... Uh, the bird is in Seattle with her new sexy grunge boyfriend. And Malcolm came round one Friday night and he brought the floppy disk with his Bon Jovi book on it and we shoved it in my computer and we took turns over the next 50 hours, 60 hours. You know, when one couldn't take it anymore, the other one took over. One might sleep. Well, Malcolm never slept. I'd, I'd sleep and Malcolm would carry on. And... Um, uh, I don't think we even read any of it back. We did the whole thing in a weekend. Um, 
I, I'd interviewed John many times. I mean, it wasn't just Malcolm's book repurposed. It was just that was our, it was an easy template. It had all the facts, the dates, a weekend. I would advise you never to read it, but it has some very good pictures. Or read it in the spirit in which it was intended. In other words, I think we got, I think we would get like two grand for something like that. We'd split it. So you go, okay, a grand for a few days' work. That's pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. A few days' work plus 10 years of working at Kerrang and getting to know John Bon Jovi and all these other people and having bundles of interviews to draw on. Most of the books, though, would take a lot longer. And then came, what was it, Iron Maiden. And I wanted Iron Maiden to be good. Uh, Gary Bushell had done this amazing uh, Zomba fan book version that I mentioned earlier called uh, Running Free. It was great. But that was 1984, and it was now 19, I'm going to say, 97. And I was talking to Rod Smallwood, and he was virtually saying, look, you can just sort of do an update on Gary's book. And I had to say, Rod, Rod, no, no, no. That book was brilliant for its time. But I want to do a book on Iron Maiden as if I was doing a book on the Beatles. I want to interview all of them separately, all the past members, people that work for them, you and Andy Taylor, your partner, promoters, uh, Derek Riggs, Martin Birch, the producer, everybody, everybody. I want to make it like this is the most important band in the world and this is going to be a book worthy of that story. And um, it took him a moment to get it, but he signed off on it and uh, we, I did my best. I did my best. Um, and that's a great book. Still very, very popular with Iron Maiden fans. Um, the only sad part of that story for me was that a couple of years later, they, they wanted to update that book, which was called Run to the Hills. And um, I, by then I was uh, running Classic Rock magazine. I was the editor, the boss. And it was very early days. Um and I just didn't have the time. So I'm trying to remember who I got. I think it was, might have been Chris Ingham, God help me. But I got Chris Ingham to do it because he'd been, he was the editor of Metal Hammer. He'd been writing about Maiden. They knew him. They were comfortable with him. I thought he can write one chapter. Um, and I, I would maybe spruce it up. But in the end, I didn't have the time. To this day, I've never read it. I've had a little look and then stopped because it's just too cheesy. Ingham has many strengths, but writing isn't one of them. And then, a few years down the line, they wanted another one. Uh, and this time I suggested Dave Ling. And Dave, of course, did a much better job. But again, I've never read that either. So the Iron Maiden biography is an odd one for me. Um, it also got soured a little bit when a few years after that, um, it became apparent that They'd been ripping me off for lots of royalties and a whole other story which involved a payout once my agent got on the case. And it's, it doesn't mean I don't feel... Uh, Steve Harris, I love Steve Harris. I've never had a bad moment with him and I totally admire him. Um, I have no problem with any of the band members as far as I know. Uh, I'm, I'm over the whole thing by now. But it has inevitably, I think, um, coloured their view of me. Because I dared to say, um, 
that belongs to me. Um, what came after that? Oh yeah, yeah, paranoid. Now that was that was a very different thing. And I'm going to end with this one and 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 the book I'm about to send out down and out in London and L.A. Paranoid is still one of the books that people that read my stuff still like the best because it is completely unusual. Uh, I sold it to a maverick publisher up in Scotland again for like a couple of grand. And you, you don't get it in one go. You get like here's 400 then a few months later another 400. I mean it's pin money. Uh, I sold it to him as a Black Sabbath biography. I had no intention of writing a Black Sabbath biography. I had this idea for this kind of not even semi-fictional, you know, these days what you'd call meta-fictional, factional. In other words, a true story, true stories, uh, but without me having to tear what's left of my hair out about whether I'm being fair to anybody or whether anybody's actually interested in this shit. I just wanted to write something, finally write something in a book that meant something to me. And I did. Uh, and it, was very successful in the sense that it got a lot of attention and I ended up with a proper literary agent uh, and he and I then embarked on the idea that I would become a novelist and I wrote three chapters of a novel which I think I ended up sticking on my official website years and years later but they got turned down by pretty much every major no every, in fact every major publisher in London and this is like 1999. Um, so they would send letters. Uh, so I always knew when it was another rejection, when the letter plopped on the mat, <clears throat> because Robert, my agent, this amazingly successful agent that took me on on the strength of Paranoid, um, they would write to him and he would just put, you know, forward the letters to me so I could see what they'd said or copies of them. I must have got about 12 or 15 of those and they were all the same and it would just really rub it home. Uh, always the same thing. The main character is completely unlikable. Stories are too dark. Um, guy can clearly write, but this is not for me. And then it, all, almost every time, it, oh, Robert, by the way, so lovely seeing you at you know, Abigail's party the other night. And I'll see you at the book launch for Stephen Fry later. You know, it's all that kind of stuff. Very disheartening. I knew it would be good news if the phone rang. If Robert rang me, it was because he had something good to say. So anyway, the novel never got done. And the Don Arden thing came along. And I was now the big cheese at Classic Rock. And I was also a dad for the first time and having a terrible... Um, I was overwhelmed and unhappy. And uh, the Don Arden thing came along. Sharon asked me personally to do it, even though when the book came out, she disavowed it and got one of her Rottweilers to call Robert, my agent, and uh, and threaten him. Bizarre. Um, uh, and that was the beginning of me, my literary biography career. I was no more going to write um, stuff called bloody good blokes I was going to do paranoid I was going to do novels and if I did do biographies they would mean something um, I think I achieved that a lot more really than I could have imagined 
Um, my first Axel book. Um, it was it was written with a, a black veil over my face, and it was done to deliberately. It was like doing a biography of Adolf Hitler. You know, you or you just you just felt free to ladle it on. Although with Axel, it's very easy to ladle it on because, my God, especially in those days, I'm talking like 2006. I've since uh, uh, withdrawn the uh, author's cut, as it were, um, online version. Uh, not because I don't think I did a good job. I mean, good writing job, but the whole thing was wrong-headed. And after that came Zeppelin. Um, and then The Doors and others. And in, in all of those, I tried to bring... I remember reading um, one Amazon review. Two, one, two actually. There was one that just went, I, I've read this. And it's just all his opinions. It's just it's just his opinions. Um, and I'm like, well, what the fuck did you expect? And I realised, oh no, these all these other metal writers, it's not about their opinion. It's about... And then James Hetfield did this. He's great. You know, us fans, we supported him, you know. They invaded our shores. Uh, lost me place. In all of those books, I've always tried to bring that. But to serve, number one, though, to serve the story. Um Get Your Rocks Off in 2015 was meant to be a sort of a follow-up to Paranoid, but it had been commissioned by Malcolm Edwards, who'd, who'd been the huge boss at Orion, and it had been commissioned some years before. He was a big fan of my original blog, um, and he was after a book somewhat in that vein, what he called a heightened version, and I never could quite get round to it. Nine years later, when I finally do, he's he's semi-retired. The whole thing has moved on. It's in the hands of other people. And whatever Malcolm and I discussed um, turned into stories about rock stars. So I did my best to maintain that paranoid uh, idea that, yeah, rock stars will be in the story because rock stars are in my story. But that isn't the story. Uh, and in the end, I turned in a draft and, and the number one feedback was more rock stars, please. So I then went back and did that. And so the whole thing became compromised and it lo lo lost its uh, luster for me because Paranoid, I knew the publisher would never even read it. No one had any input into that other than the editor who would uh, just do what editors do, very impartial editing, a lot of which I changed back anyway. And, and, and if you want to see the real original version by me, you can get that on Kindle from Amazon for like, you know, 90p or something. That is better than the book. It's the real book. Um, but Get Your Rocks Off didn't have that. It was compromised. My agent wanted one thing, my publisher wanted another, and I wanted another. So a lot of it works. I do like it, but it isn't paranoid. This book, uh, I'm now, I'm just, we're waiting for copies to arrive. Should be end of next week. And then we'll send them straight out. Uh, uh, this is 
probably the real follow-up to Paranoid. It's not uh, done in uh, chapter form as Paranoid was. There's no vague attempt at a, at a, a chronology. In fact, there's no attempt whatsoever at a chronology. It doesn't start at the beginning or end at the end, um, although some of it goes that way. I'm calling it short stories because I don't know what else to call it. But it, for sure, this is the follow-up to Paranoid uh, in, in, in a creative sense, in the sense of this is the first book I will have done since Paranoid. That is me writing for me, pretending no one is reading. Because that would just spoil it. So some of it's very embarrassing to me. Uh, most of it's not at all embarrassing. I just think there's some... This is me. It's, you know, when when you finally do something that is you, it's hard to want it to be anything else. Um, years ago, I made... An, this is another story for another time, but I made an album with a very talented guy. And it occurred to me halfway through that uh, if my name was on it, people would assume it was a certain kind of music. Um, but it wasn't a certain kind of music. It, this was just the music that was made when Tim and I got together. And that's what this writing is. It's just what happens when I sit here and, and write for myself. And um, I'm really... I'm really interested to see what people think. 250 copies. When they're gone, they're gone forever. Uh, if you want one, uh, message me um, at my Patreon site or my official Facebook page. Um, you can send a tweet to my good friend uh, on Twitter, uh, Mick Blackwall. At Mick Blackwall. All one word. Um, uh, give me your details and I'll uh, give him your details and he'll pass them on to me and I'll get back to you down and out in London and LA have a good Sunday planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with Quince Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. How do I stop this, Fern? <laughs> <laughs>